Our Holy Father, we thank you that we can come to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. You invite us to approach you boldly, not on our own merit, but on the merits of your Son who has credited us with his very righteousness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to seek and to save that which is lost. And that a real mark of spiritual maturity is not that children are a bother, but that we love them and we embrace them and we care for their souls. So we thank our Father of the children across America who are being raised in homes with no spiritual guidance. Many of their parents like sheep without a shepherd. And so we ask, Holy Father, that you would work on this campus in Graniteville and through the saints of this church to make a difference this year. We're asking you, Father, for some 800 children. We ask in this new week as we are in and around town that you would give us a sensitivity to people in our neighborhoods and supermarkets and places where we work and to reach out and invite. Thank you for the children who have found Jesus as Lord over these past 35 years here at CBC. And we pray that that would happen again this year and not just the children but many of their parents would find Christ because of it. We thank you for the way our own children would be ministered to, and we pray it would be a great event in their life. Now, Father, we humbly approach you today. We thank you that you've given us your word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You told us that we are to long for it as a baby would long for milk, that we might grow in respect to our salvation. Lord Jesus, you said sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we thank you for its powerful effect to renew our minds, to change the way we think, that we might become all that you've called us to be in Jesus Christ. I pray for many who are listening and some even on other continents of the world that you give us each week. And we pray as the live stream comes for those here or elsewhere who have never met you as Lord and Savior, that you would search their hearts, Spirit of God, convict them as you promised to do of sin, righteousness, and judgment and bring them into a holy relationship with yourself. Help me, Father. Please come and fill me and anoint me and use me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take God's word this morning, would you, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation, it will capture your attention. It will stir your imagination. And it will point you to the grand and glorious uh, ending that God has for his people. Really a new beginning when he takes us home to be with him in heaven. Now, if you're with us for the very first time, this is the seventh message in our series here from the Revelation. And if you've uh, not heard some of the prior messages, I promise it will be very, very helpful to you. You might want to download on your phone the Search the Scriptures app or on your computer, and all those messages are available. Revelation, it's really the conclusion to the Bible. It's not revelations, it's apocalypsis. It's singular in the New Testament. This is not the book of revelations that we're studying. This is the book of revelation. It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And what is so amazing is that a book whose title is The Unveiling to Uncover is a book that is very closed to a lot of people. I've told you that it is the least preached book in all of the New Testament. Many people are intimidated by it. And yet, it is one of those books that God tells us that if we will read it and study it and heed it, 
that we will be blessed by it. Now, there are many general exhortations that come from the blessing of studying and reading Scripture, but this is the only book in all of the Bible with a specific promise attached to the reading of this book. So we would do wise to heed it. Uh, now, let me just refresh your memory where we are in the book of Revelation. Revelation 119 is an outline of the Bible. God gave us a divine outline in the book. Therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1 is a vision of the glorious, exalted, resurrected Christ. And he writes about that in chapter 1. The things which are, things that were true and happening in his day. That's chapters 2 and 3. Uh, as he writes to seven literal actual churches. And then the things that will take place, metatata, after these things. And so the first two words, uh, in three in English, in chapter four is after these things, metatata. So those are the three major divisions. Here's the chart I've given you. The things past, chapter one, that's the Christ. It's all about Jesus. Chapters two and three, the things that are present. He gives us a picture of Christ in his church. And then the things future, the things Jesus will uh, bring about, the coming consummation. And we will walk all the way through the events that will lead us up to the second coming, his millennial reign, and the new heaven and the new earth. Now, chapter 1 and verse 20 is part of that vision. It's an, ex it's an explanation of what John had seen, but it also serves as kind of a transitional verse into chapters 2 and 3. So let me read Revelation 1.20 again. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we've discovered that these seven churches are literal churches that represent all churches in every generation. And so when you read Christ's assessment of all the churches, each one concludes with the same uh, final admonition. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, the problems they face are problems that any church can face, maybe are facing or will face in the future. He is writing not just to one church, but to seven churches, and he wants all seven churches to read all seven letters. And by application, he wants us to read all seven letters. Because like with the other epistles in the New Testament, whether it's the epistle to the Romans or Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians, it was not just for that church, but for all the churches. It's for the people of Community Bible Church. Now, we've already studied that there is a, a pattern that runs through all of these churches. He begins with a characteristic description of himself, and then there's an evaluation. Uh, maybe something positive, maybe something negative, or both. And we've seen all three expressed. Uh, and, and then he concludes again with this statement, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. What Jesus, the Lord of his church, says to the churches. Listen, it doesn't matter what you think of this church. It doesn't matter what the church growth people think of this church. In the end, all that matters is what the chief shepherd thinks of this church. And the church is made up of people with individual ears. And really, in any church, all seven churches are represented by the individuals. 
but typically there's a composite characteristic that a church would best represent. Maybe it's Sardis or Philadelphia or Laodicea or whatever it might be. And so we come this morning to the fourth church as Jesus addresses the church in Thyatira. And you can see the title of this morning's message is Jesus or Jezebel. Let's begin by reading the longest address that Jesus gives to any of the churches. Revelation chapter 2, beginning now in verse 18. Follow along in your Bible. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, I know your works and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads, she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, when we come to our passage this morning, it really challenges us what it means to be a Christian. Not how to become a Christian, but what it means once you are saved and what are the implications of being a Christian. Now, throughout God's Word, He refers to His people as saints, Haggai, holy ones. You are a saint this morning if you've been born again because sainthood in the Bible is not determined by what you've done. It's determined by what God has called you, what he has credited to you. You have been justified, declared righteous if you are born again. And so whether you are the newest Christian or the oldest Christian, the most consistent or inconsistent, the most victorious or the most defeated, if you know Jesus, then you are a saint of God. But with this new position of sainthood, God calls us to a new practice. He wants our practice to match our position. The Apostle Paul, when he quotes the prophet Isaiah, hones on this truth. He writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Now, neither Paul nor Isaiah were teaching a life of asceticism when he says, come out and be separate. He's not calling us into a cloister of monks. 
God calls us to engage the world. He calls us to win the world, but not to be worldly. The problem is, is sometimes we touch things that we know we should not touch, or sometimes in our ignorance, like little children, we touch things that we should not touch. And so the question that God puts before his people as he addresses this church, in every church, and really not just here, but all the way through the New Testament, is how do you live in the world without being worldly? How far can you go, say, in accepting the world's fashions and standards and practices without becoming like them? Now, unfortunately, today, if you have standards, some will accuse you of being narrow-minded. But it's not always bad to be narrow-minded. Listen, if I go to my physician and I'm sick, I want him to be very narrow-minded over what kind of a prescription he gives me. And if I am sick spiritually, facing either a heaven or hell, because that is ultimately what we all will face, then I want to be very clear as God's spokesman, as God's doctor, as to what his prescription is to the way of salvation. And when it comes to your testimony, your lifestyle for Jesus, which is the focus and scope of this passage, I don't want to be polluted by the world such that I would give up my usability before the living God. Now, in many ways, Thyatira was really a wonderful church, but they had one tragic mistake. They were tolerating some things. They were putting up with some things that they should have put out, put out of the church. And of course, um, they may have thought that they were broadening their minds and being very open, when in reality, what they were doing is they were stretching their consciences. They were compromising. They were tolerating things that God says we are not to tolerate. So God has given us his word to give us wisdom to know how it is we should live. Paul, when he writes to the church at Rome, says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we're doing this morning. That's why we come and we teach the Bible expositionally. Because that's the only way you're going to grow and become the person that God wants you to become. We're not here to entertain. We're here to feed. We're here to shepherd the flock. Feed them my word. That's the way a pastor expresses his love to Jesus. The only way my mind, your mind, anyone's mind can be changed is with truth. And so don't be conformed. Don't let the world shape you into its mold. But be transformed. Metamorpho. We get our word metamorphosis from it you know, the process that a a butterfly goes through to become what he is, we are to be transformed through the renewing of our minds that we might prove, understand, test, experience that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, namely the will of God. And so that's what Jesus does for his church, and that's what he does for this church. Now, if you've read the passage, you can see it really divides into three parts, like many of these letters to the churches do. And he begins with what Christ distinguished about this church. That's how it starts, what Jesus distinguished about this church. Again, the traditional introduction is given here in verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Now, if you've been with us in our study of the first three churches, then you know that there are two usages of the word angel in the Bible. It can be used of a literal, actual, real angel, or it can be used of a human, or it could be used of both. 
Um, and again, context determines everything. And we've seen that in this context that these are not seven literal angels that he is speaking to because angels never preach and teach the church. But as virtually all Bible scholars agree, these are seven angel pastors. So you're looking at Angel Carl this morning. He has called me to shepherd his church. I don't do it alone. There's a plurality of elders in every local assembly. But amongst that plurality, there is a leader amongst equals. And so he's addressing what today we would call in the 21st century the senior pastor. Now you can see here on the map, if you remember, that these seven churches follow this horseshoe type delivery, beginning with uh, Ephesus, number one, and ending with Laodicea, number seven. So we started with Ephesus, which is the formal church. I call it the formal church because it was doctrinally straight as an arrow, but unfortunately they had left their first love. Then we went from Ephesus 35 miles north of there to Smyrna. That's the fearful church. So Jesus says, do not fear. Why were they fearful? Because they were being persecuted for living a righteous life. Then last time, if you were here, we traveled another 50 miles north of that to the church at Pergamum. They were the faltering church because they were compromising God's truth. They were twisting God's word. Today, we go 40 miles, basically almost diagonally across, but southeast uh, to the church at Thyatira, and I'm calling them the forbearing church. Forbearing, not in a positive way, but the negative usage of the word. They were tolerating false doctrine. There were godly people in the church who knew that there were certain teachings that were wrong. They didn't embrace them, but they tolerated them, though there were individuals in the church who followed those teachings. Now, I think it would be helpful to say just a few words about the city of Thyatira. Remember, it's in the province of Asia. Asia is not what we consider the continent of Asia today. It was one of the Roman provinces. And within the province of Asia, later it was called Asia Minor to distinguish it from the continent, are these seven churches. And we've seen there's a reason why he selected these seven. And we'll explore that further, especially when we come to the final church. Uh, Thyatira was originally called uh, Pelopia, Pelopia. But there was a general who ended up conquering this city. We actually studied this general, if you were with us in our series in the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 8, the prophet, ever before it happened, predicted that there would be this leader who pictures Alexander the Great, who would conquer the world, establish the Grecian empire and after his death his empire would be divided into four sections and one of those four sections was led by a general by the name of Seleucus. Well when he conquers this city in 290 BC back home his daughter is being born and his daughter's name is Thugatira and so he renamed the city Thyatira. If I asked you how you came up with some of your children's names. I've heard some interesting stories over the years. One lady who named her child after a pain in the paint store. I mean, I've heard all kinds of things. But, you know, if you conquer a city and you take it, I suppose you could name the city after your son or daughter that's being born. Now, if we could look at a more detailed map, 
uh, a topographical map that you would see that this city, Thyatira, was on the border between Lydia and Mycenae. It's located between two valleys. And so it becomes a very, very significant trade route, and it becomes a very important city. Now here's a picture of uh, one of many. There's a lot of ruins that are left in this particular city that you can explore and examine, and a lot of inscriptions that are written on the stones, and the stones tell a story. And if you read a lot of the inscriptions, you would discover that there are all kinds of trade guilds in this uh, city, what today we might call a union. Sir William Ramsay, the great British archaeologist, said this of the city, more trade guilds are found in the city of Thyatira than any other Asian city. And as you read the inscriptions, you discover that there were wool workers, there were linen workers, there were makers of garments, there were people who made leather products. Um, But most importantly and most distinguished, this city was famous for its purple clothing. Now, if you lived in the first century and you wanted to wear a particular status symbol, you would wear something that was made out of purple. And if you go to this city, Thyatira today, even to this day on the outskirts of the city, you will find the matter root. And from the matter root, they made purple dye. They used that and they used uh, the murex. If you've ever seen a murex, it looks like a big conch shell. And out of the throat of the murex, they could get one drop of purple. And it would take a lot of these matter roots to produce the purple dye. And so it made it very, very expensive. And usually kings and those who were in royal positions would wear purple robes. And so Herod Antipas hated Jesus so much, he put a purple robe on his back at his own expense to mock him as a king He put a purple robe on his back. And that's why, of course, the four soldiers gambled for that road. Now, if you remember, Ephesus was the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. It was the capital city, so to speak. Then we came to Smyrna. That was New York of Asia Minor. It was the commercial city. Then last time we were in Pergamum. That was a religious and healing city here in Asia Minor. Today we come to Thyatira. It was a city not known just in this province, but across the Roman world as the fashion center. It was the Paris of the day, so to speak. And again, especially known for their purple dyed clothing. Do you remember the Apostle Paul in the second missionary journey? He encountered a woman in a place called Philippi who was from the city. Her name was Lydia. Let me read to you from Acts 16, 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, meaning she was a Gentile who was converted to Judaism. This seller of purple fabrics was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, some have made Lydia a businesswoman and, you know, use it as a biblical basis for women jettisoning the home and going out. We don't even know if she was married. But if she was married, no doubt, because she was a godly woman and understood the scriptures, she had a cottage industry of sorts, and she was very successful. And she's converted that day. She's the very first person to be converted in Europe. 
and her home becomes the headquarters for the Apostle Paul's mission there in Philippi. And then in turn, Europe becomes the headquarters for Christianity for the next thousand years. Europe becomes center stage for taking the gospel to the world. Now, when you study these seven churches that are found here, you will discover that Thyatira is the least important from a first century perspective of all seven cities because it's a small little city. There's only about 30,000 people who live in it. And yet, it has the longest of the seven letters, though it would have been considered the least important place. Listen, there's a lot of small places in this world that are important to God. And you may be listening to me today and you are a pastor in some little crossroads community and there's only several hundred, maybe a few thousand people who live in your community. But what you are doing is no less important. And you may be serving in a church like that. Your church is not unimportant to God. God needs people in every place. And those same pastors who pastor a church of 150, if they were in a city like Atlanta with 6 million, they might be pastoring a church of 10,000. But God is not a respecter of persons. And God cares about his people wherever they are. And so God places in this city... This woman, Lydia, he brings her all the way from uh, Thyatira to Philippi so she might hear the gospel and Europe becomes center stage. And God places people all over the world in different places to make an impact for his son. Now, uh, with that said, let's see how the Lord deals with this church. We begin with the Lord distinguished his character to the church. He distinguished his character to this church. Again in verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Now remember the descriptions for six of the seven churches come right out of chapter one. And a number of you have told me you took the challenge. You went back, you studied chapter one, and you matched the verses next to the introduction in the church. And if you haven't done that, do that yet. There's one church that he does not draw from the vision of chapter one, and we'll see that there's a reason for that. So he chooses seven titles, and he doesn't uh, obscurely choose the seven titles. He chooses a title of himself from the first chapter that fits the need of the city and the need of the church and where that church is in their spiritual growth. So if you remember, in chapter 1, he spoke of the seven stars. He uses that to describe Ephesus. He spoke of the first and the last, and we saw the significance of that as it relates to Smyrna. He spoke of the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth, and we saw the significance of that as it relates to Pergamum. And now to the church at Thyatira, he describes himself again from the first chapter with eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. If you haven't done it, write it out in the margin, Revelation 1, 14 and 15. That's where that comes from, Revelation 1, 14 and 15. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, John writes in the vision. This speaks of his gaze, that he is perceptive, that he is discerning. In Revelation 19 and verse 12, the Bible describes him in his second coming as coming again with eyes that are aflame, eyes that are flaming. He sees everything. He sees the window of our hearts. Some of us wish we had a stained glass window this morning over it. 
But he sees right through us. And he knows everything about us, and yet he still loves us. But you cannot hide from Jesus. You can hide from your pastor. You can hide from your boss. You can hide from your friend. You can hide from your spouse. But you cannot hide from Jesus Christ. So we are not surprised in Acts chapter 1 and verse 24 that Jesus is called the cardianosis. Uh, Cardia, we get our word. Cardia, heart. He's the gnosis. He is the one who knows the hearts. He knows the hearts of all men. And so Jesus sees what is in us today. His eyes picture very clearly his ability to discern. And by the way, what's so interesting is that in the vision of Revelation chapter 1, it matches the description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, and not by accident. The Ancient of Days, if you remember, was the descriptive metaphor that the Father uses of himself. And yet those same descriptive terms from Daniel 7 are applied to God the Son in Revelation 1 and throughout these two chapters as he pulls from that chapter. Why? Because to see him is to see the Father. He was deity in diapers at his incarnation. He was very God of very truly God and truly man. And his eyes, even before his resurrection body is given to him, are very descriptive in the Gospels. For instance, in Mark chapter 3, when the religious leaders want to see if he will heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, Jesus with his eyes gazed at them and he saw their hardness of heart. With that piercing gaze, with eyes of fire, he saw what was true of them. In Mark chapter 10, with his eyes, he sees the people with love and compassion. In the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us that the eye is the window of the body. You can tell a lot about a person's eyes. When the eye is clear, the soul is clean. When the soul is dirty, the eye is foggy. Jesus, in his resurrected body, with eyes of fire, sees everything. He knows everything. Further, from Revelation 1.15, we're told his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. His feet have been refined in a furnace. Now, again, remember, the book of Revelation draws all the way through it the Old Testament, and that's what makes it so difficult for many because today, with maybe the exception of the Psalms and the Proverbs, the Old Testament is the clean section of our Bible. And yet 300 of the 404 verses come directly from the Old Testament. Now, you'll hear numbers like 600 and 800, but they're double counting, and that's okay. But there are 300 specific references out of the 404 verses, that's 74%, of the book of Revelation comes out of the Old Testament. We saw the theolog theological structure comes out of the book of Daniel, and some of the allusions come out of Daniel. That's why Daniel is so important to understanding Revelation, and that's why we covered the book of Daniel before we did the Revelation. And if you remember in Daniel chapter 2, there's that magnificent statue that, that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream. And Daniel is given an ability from God to interpret the meaning of the statue. And it starts with the head of gold, picturing Nebuchadnezzar, and it goes all the way down 
to those feet that are mixed with clay and iron. And then we saw that mighty stone, a picture of the Messiah that comes and smashes the statue to pieces. A picture of God coming with a rod of iron and he will rule over the nations of the world. So Jesus doesn't have iron and clay feet. He has feet that have been refined in a fire to emphasize the purity and the authority of his feet. And so the expression, the feet of kings, because kings are typically elevated when they uh, evaluate their subject. The feet of kings speaks of a king's authority. And Jesus with bronze feet, and we studied last time that bronze in the Bible, and we'll see it again in the Revelation, is a symbol of judgment. And so Jesus comes with his feet of bronze, with his eyes of fire, and he's evaluating his people. So first, he distinguishes his character of the church. Secondly, the Lord distinguished the works of the church, the works of the church. And so the omniscient, all-seeing, authoritative Son of God exists. I know your deeds, some of your translations say. I know your works and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds or your works of late are greater than the first. So Jesus begins by telling us that he knows their deeds or their works. Now works are fine as long as they are kept in perspective. The Bible is very clear that you're not saved by your works. You're not saved by your deeds. For by grace have you been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Paul will write in, in Galatians, if you could be saved by your works, then Christ died in vain. He died for nothing. Two reasons given in the Bible why your works cannot save you. They can never make you righteous. They can never remove the stain of sin. And God, as he will write at the end of the revelation, will not allow anything into his heaven that will defile it. And so unless somehow the defilement of sin is dealt with, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And number two, works can never satisfy the just penalty of sin, which is death. But works are important. They're described in the Bible as the fruit of salvation, not as the root of salvation. You're not saved by works, but then the next verse says, we are his workmanship, poema, poetry, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so Jesus recognizes their deeds, their works, and he spells them out with four nouns. Notice, love, faith, service, and perseverance. The first two, love and faith, really describe our motivation. Twice-born saints are people who desire to serve the Lord, not because they have to as much as they get to, not because I'm trying to work my way to heaven, but because I'm going to heaven. We are not simply uh, motivated by a set of do's and don'ts. God has his do's and don'ts, but that's not the motivation for doing those do's and don'ts. It's the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in, this, in the present age. And then the next two nouns, notice service and perseverance. Service, diakonon, it comes in the Bible, is either servant or deacon. It's the same word. He that would be great among you, let him be the diakonon, the deacon of all. There is a non-technical use of the word. And then he that would be a deacon must meet these qualifications. That's the technical use of the word. But it's interesting that he describes these saints as diakonon. 
In other words, they didn't see the service in the church as relegated just to a particular uh, elite body of believers, but that every saint is called to be a servant. And then they were known for their perseverance. And it's a word that describes someone who is willing to keep going even in difficult circumstances, even under the strain of a Christ-hating world. And so we are to serve and persevere, not out of compulsion, not out of a spirit of I have to, but out of a spirit that I get to. And these were people who were growing. And the emphasis is here is not quantitatively, but qualitatively. How do I know that? Because we will come in just a few verses where he will say their deeds of late are greater than the first. That is, you are growing and you are more characterized by these four nouns today than you were back yonder. They were becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Listen, this is a great church in some respects. It's been said, and I think it may be accurate, that the lifespan of most churches in terms of their effectiveness is 15 years. And then after 15 years, the church begins to decline and wane, and sometimes they go into total apostasy, and they're no longer even considered a church by God. Here's a church, Thyatira. They've been around for 60 years. And Jesus said they were still progressing. Now, from a pure numerical perspective, 80% of the churches in America are on the decline. Very sad. The Wall Street Journal says that in the next decade, 50,000 churches in America will close. They'll become nightclubs or condos or homes or all kinds of different things, and that's what they are becoming. And it's so sad and so unfortunate. But here's a church that was progressing, and they were progressing in the most important realm, and that was qualitatively. And typically, when the church are growing qualitatively, the church will grow quantitatively. Listen, you this morning, let's not talk about the church as a whole. Let's talk about us as individuals. We're either progressing or we are regressing. We are either green and growing or we are brown and dying. There's no in-between. You cannot stand still. The great church in Ephesus was backsliding. They had left their first love. The small church here in Thyatira was progressing. They had a very relevant, deepening love. Now, that's what Christ distinguished about this church. Beginning now in verse 20 through verse 23, we have a description of what Christ disliked about this church, what he disliked about the church. Notice now verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Two sad realities. First, Christ disliked their toleration of Jezebel's heresy. He disliked their toleration of the Jezebel heresy. There was a vice mixed in with these four virtues and it was a terrible vice. And so now we have the Son of God with his eyes of fire and his burnished bronze feet saying, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. There was life in this church, but there was the beginning of a spiritual malignancy that if left unchecked would destroy this church. 
They were tolerating a woman whose teaching, both theologically and morally, was evil. Now, this is not the first church whose trouble might be placed back to, traced back to some dear woman. This was Satan's witch, as it were. Mary Baker Eddy, she grew up in a congregational church in New Hampshire. I preached in the, 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 the oldest congregational church in New Hampshire when I was 23 years old. They had no idea what they were getting when they allowed this Campus Crusade speak team to come in. And they gave me the sermon. And the pastor came unglued, and after I'd spoken of heaven and hell, of how to be saved, he stood up in the pulpit and said, don't let this young man deceive you. There is no such thing as hell. Now, that was once a great church. And Mary Baker Eddy grew up in a great church, but she did not repent. And so she came and developed a whole new religion called Christian science, which is neither Christian nor scientific. Ellen G. White, she was raised in a born-again, Bible-believing Methodist church in Portland, Maine. But she did not repent and receive Jesus as Lord. And she created a church called Seventh-day Adventists. Now, there are, believe it or not, some born-again believers in the Seventh-day Adventist church, but it is so riddled with error and falsehood that in some parts of the world, they don't even consider them Christians. When I go to the Ukraine, they think Seventh-day Adventists are a cult. We, we don't even fellowship with them. And that's true, at least in that section of the world. Now, let me say, many more cults and aberrant forms of Christianity were started by men than they were by women. So I'm not picking on women here this morning. But Jesus here isolates, notice, the woman Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was not her real name. That was her figurative name. She is figuratively being described like the Jezebel of the Old Testament. Remember, 300 of the 404 verses Go back to the Old Testament. So you might want to write in the margin 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 9. 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 9. And if you're new to the Bible or maybe you haven't read that section of Scripture in a while, go back and you're going to find out a whole lot about Satan's witch. Jezebel is her symbolic name. Remember, he's signifying this revelation to us as the opening verse indicates. And so most of our English translations to catch the nuance in Greek renders it that woman Jezebel, or paraphrase, you know that woman, the, the Jezebel type. To call a woman Jezebel would be like calling a man Judas. It was the worst thing that could be said about her, because if you know Jezebel from First and Second Kings, you know she was a colorful character in more ways than one. She painted her eyes, she adorned her face, and when she went, put her war paint on, she went out and she did evil. Horrible things. And no true prophetess, if they were born again, would keep the name Jezebel. They would immediately, I have a new name. And they would have immediately adopted it. But Jesus is giving her this symbolic name because she was a wicked woman. Jezebel in the Old Testament was a clever woman, a wicked woman. She came from Phoenicia. Her father was a king. And she introduced Baal worship. And I won't even describe it. It is so heinous and evil. It should never be mentioned, some of the things that she did from a pulpit. And of course, she ultimately, uh, you know, is judged by God and dies. And her husband, Ahab, if you remember, up till that time, God says he's the most wicked king that had walked. The northern kingdom, 20 kings. Southern kingdom, 20 kings. Northern kingdom, all 20 kings were evil. Southern kingdom, seven righteous. The rest evil. 
And when Ahab steps to the throne, God says he's the worst king to date. And he's like a lot of men today. In some ways, he was a strong man. You find him often in battle. In fact, he dies in a battle. But in home, he's a weak man. There are men like that. They're strong at the office. But at home, they're weak. They're not the spiritual leaders of their home. And so Jezebel, the daughter of a pagan king, gets Israel to worship Baal, the fertility god. And so God raised up Elijah. Remember him there on top of Mount Carmel or Mount Carmel? And uh, he says you cannot mix Baal worship with Jehovah worship. Remember 1 Kings 18.21? How long... Will you hesitate, he says to the people, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord, all caps, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Because of Ahab's weakness, she very quickly has freedom to introduce wickedness. And Jesus repeatedly tells us, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve two masters at the same time. You're going to serve one or the other. There is no middle ground. The same could be said of other religions and cults in our world today. If there was ever a woman who was inspired by the devil, if not inhabited by a demon herself, it was Jezebel. And Paul tells us in the New Testament that in the latter times, there will be doctrines of demons. Demons will be behind some teachings. Take Mormonism, for instance. You meet a Mormon, and they're so crafty, just like the devil describes himself. Uh, he's, uh, God describes him as an angel of light. And so when you ask him, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Of course we believe he's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. But Son of God is with a small s. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. We're all sons and daughters of God, but not God the Son and so their strategy, I think it's been eight or nine years now, they said we're going to mix in with the evangelicals. And now these dear Mormons are mixing in with the evangelicals, even at some of their conferences. And it's an evil. And God's people need to be on alert. Last Sunday, just last Sunday, one of the bishops of the United Methodist Church ordained a transgender person to be a deacon. Now, deacons are a little bit different in the UM church than they are, say, in our church. We follow the biblical pattern. They don't. In either case, uh, they are like preachers. Many of the pastors are really technically deacons. And so Sally Dick uh, went ahead and ordained her. And of course, you know, if you're transgender, is your name Mary or Mike? I don't know, you know, you're transgender. So they, she calls herself M. And when you describe a transgender person, it's not he or she, it's they or there, the plural pronoun. So they changed the words from the book of discipline when she laid hands on her. She said, pour out your Holy Spirit upon M. Send them, not him or her, send them now to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to announce the reign of God and to equip the church for ministry. Now, they did not discipline this bishop because according to the book of discipline, which the United Methodist Church uses, 
because this woman was not, she was a former lesbian. She said, I'm not sure, first she was a heterosexual, then she, which we all are when we're born, by the way. And, and then she becomes a lesbian, then she's confused, so she becomes transgender. But because she supposedly is not living with another woman or whatever, then it's okay, and they've accepted it. Now, right now, in the church in South Carolina, the United Methodist Church in South Carolina, I read to you the letter from the bishop a few months ago, and it was expressive not just of his desire, but of churches across America, bishops across America, that the United Methodist Church is to pray for wisdom as to whether or not we should ordain homosexual or transgender people. They're already doing it, so I'm not sure what they're praying about. But you know, the rationale is, look, we were wrong once on slavery and black people. Maybe we're wrong on transgender people. Look, if I were black, I would come up out of my seat and say, how dare you? How dare you even compare transgenderism to the civil rights movement? There is no comparison at all. This is an evil beyond evil. Now look, I want transgender, homosexual, drunks, fornicators, adulterers to come to this church and we will welcome you and embrace you with open arms, but we're not going to change Jesus' standard for you to become a member. We want you to repent. We want you to believe on the Lord Jesus and he will forgive you. Now, the United Methodist Church is so far away today. It's the third largest denomination in America, Roman Catholic, Southern Baptist, United Methodist. It's totally apostate today. If you are a Christian today and you give a dime to the United Methodist Church, you're giving a portion of that dime to promote some very evil things. You should leave. You say, I can't leave. I grew up in this church. My grandmother was in the church. My great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother was in the church. They're all buried out back. Look, if grandma could get up and leave, she would, but you can. And you ought to. You ought to. Now listen, we're not talking here about a church. This is a church the malignancy was started and that's where it will end. But God wants him to deal with the malignancy now. Some, most of you were very supportive of the elders and let me say thank you for that when we decided to take our radio station out of Moody Broadcasting. And we did it on the basis of a decision they made. They said it was okay to drink, smoke, and gamble in moderation. Now, forget the drinking issue today. I know it's fashionable, you know, especially in the reform movement. Go ahead, have a glass of wine with your beer and all this nonsense. Forget the fact that it causes the brother to stumble, has the appearance of evil, doesn't glorify God, and would be classified as strong drink and therefore forbidden unless you're a dying man and you give it as a painkiller like you give morphine. Forget that. That's a sermon in itself. <laughs> but just take smoking. I mean, one of the leaders in the reform movement who taught it's okay to smoke in moderation, he's on oxygen right now and can't leave his home. And they're encouraging these young men and women to engage in these things. And so when Moody said that, we said, no, we're done. We wrote him, pleaded with him. Look, my own seminary. They waited until Dr. Pentecost and Dr. Howard Hendricks were both dead and now their policy for 90 years didn't reflect biblical truth and we were wrong and so now it's okay. And the rationale is if we're going to get these young professors that we need, then we need to lift the standards. Look, you don't want those kinds of professors if that's what it takes to get them. And so they had this Jezebel type of woman. How long? 
How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is Lord, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Now, most of these folks were not doing that. Most of these folks were growing, and so Jesus commends the majority for not following the deep things of Satan. In fact, when you meet the living God, the pattern is your life will change. Listen to 1 John 3, little children. John writes this in his first letter. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible teaches that when you're born again, one of the evidences is, is that the direction of your life changes. Certainly a Christian can fall into any kind of sin. And some of the saints in Thyatira, beyond the tares that were in the church, had fallen into sin. But the general principle is that when you receive Jesus as your Lord, your life changes. And if your life hasn't changed, it just meant you've never received him. You say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I, I teach Sunday school and I share my faith. Jesus said in the end there will be people who say, I preached in your name. I did miracles in your name. I cast out demons in your name. But I never, ever, ever knew you. And so he now highlights the evil behind her life in ministry. Here's the problem. Sometimes leaders, sometimes pastors, sometimes church members, they just want to avoid confrontation. It's no fun. Who wants to confront someone? It's no fun. But it's our responsibility to the sheep. Oh, I'd rather not get involved. Don't want to be controversial. We'll just look the other way. And Jesus says, listen, she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now understand it in the context of these trade guilds here in the city. A trade guild was more than a modern union. It was as much religious as it was an organization for commercial purposes. And because they had worshipped in the city a number of false gods, if your business was not doing well, they traced it back to a lack of worship to the god that signified that trade guild. We have literature outside of the Bible that tells us what they did when they had their meetings. They took a, a portion of wine and they poured it on a rock and it went up to their goddess or God is a sweet aroma. They, they took things that were recorded in Torah and they manipulated it. And that's what Satan often does. And then they had a fellowship meal. And then after the fellowship meal, they drank and drank until they could not stand and it all ended in an orgy. Now Christians, of course, could not participate in that. They couldn't eat a meal to a false god. Uh, they couldn't rationalize, well, this is just a, a mere formality. No, they had to make a choice, and with that choice came consequences. So how did this lady pull it off in this church? Remember, she calls herself a prophetess. Every cult... Every aberrant doctrine typically is built on some dream, some vision, some extra book beyond the 66 books of the Bible, or there's a taking away or an adding or manipulation to the book that God has given us. Maybe she cited 1 Corinthians 8. Hey, look, the Apostle Paul said, there's no such thing as an idol of the world. In the world, there's only one God but one. 
It is true that Paul said that, but he also said in that same chapter that a believer could not knowingly eat a meal that was involved in an I, I, the worship of a false god without participating in demonic influence in the table of demons. So maybe she said, look, Paul said an idol is nothing. You can salute that pagan deity and still be a good Christian. After all, we're free and we're under grace. And so the Jezebel teaching was a permissive teaching that you could sin with impunity. But as Proverbs says, a man cannot take coal to his bosom without being burned. That's the essence of all of Satan's deception. There's no consequence. You shall not die. And so they tolerated this woman Jezebel, and maybe they did it in the name of love because they were a church known for love. It's possible to have a warm heart and a soft head. No doubt some of these Christians did. Some people probably reasoned, well, you know, we don't want to be too narrow. Uh, you know, after all, Jezebel's a nice person. Look, I- I've met a lot of false teachers who are some of the nicest people I've ever met. Oh, she's a nice person, and we don't have to cross every T and dot every I just alike. But Paul said in Titus 3, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. John wrote in his second letter, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Please know there is nothing wrong with a Christian who says you cannot teach this, you cannot say this, you cannot practice this and be consistent with the Word of God. If it doesn't square with the Word of God, don't do it. But no doubt this woman said, look, I'm a prophetess. I'm more educated than you. I am spiritual. I am deeper than you are. And Jesus says really what she is into is the deep things of Satan No doubt some rationalize, look, Paul said if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. We've got to provide for our family. And if we don't uh, worship in this trade guild and do what they ask, we'll lose our job and our our recognition and our our customers in the community and we'll be done and we won't be able to feed our family and we'll die. No, you don't have to eat to live. If you need to die for Jesus, then you die for Jesus. Now, the general spirit of this church is they had tolerated this woman. And God warns, a little leaven leavens the whole dump. So beyond their toleration, Christ also disliked their apathy toward the Jezebel heresy. He disliked their apathy apathy toward this heresy. Again, verse 21, I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Now, here's a picture of God's marvelous grace. He didn't immediately judge her. He gave her time to repent. And don't confuse, as Peter says, the patience of God, his long-suffering with the fact that he doesn't care about what this world is doing. Just because God is patient doesn't mean he's impotent. He will step in sometime into human history. And God gave her time to repent because God would always rather correct than condemn. God would always rather pardon than to punish. And so the time for repentance had now ended. And let me just say parenthetically, if I read the New Testament right, the hottest part of hell are for those leaders who will allow 
gross error in the church and then to teach it. For the false teachers like Jezebel, and God was long-suffering. He wanted her to repent. Verse 22, Behold, I will throw her on a bed. The time of retribution had come. I had thrown her on a bed, literally, or here. I have thrown her on a bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. Now, adultery. There's two forms in the New Testament. Literal, physical, and spiritual adultery. When you give your life to Jesus, you are married to Jesus. There are seven figures. This would be a great study if you haven't done it before. Go through the seven figures that God gives of Christ to his church. The shepherd, the sheep, the vine, the branches. Well, one of them is the bride and the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride. And so when you give your life to Jesus, you're married to Jesus. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 11, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betroth you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. James will write, You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world, its values, is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Being saved is a lot like being married because you get married, you take some vows, and you assume some responsibilities. Even so, at your baptism, you confess the same thing, that Jesus is Lord. And some were committing physical adultery, no doubt, when they gave themselves to wine at these trade guilds. That's what wine does when you get boozed up. It causes you to become naked, the prophet Habakkuk says. You will do things that otherwise you would not do. That's why these Christians who advocate wine, my son, one of my sons was telling me at the church he's in, he said, Dad, unfortunately most of the people drink. He says, I've yet to see some of my friends who haven't had too much at some time or another. That's what it does. Oh, I can control it. Sure you can. And so Jesus speaks of physical adultery and spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world's values is to commit spiritual adultery because you can't serve two bridegrooms. You must serve one or the other. Now the Greek New Testament just says, I'll throw you on a bed. But the word that's used, trying to bring out the nuance, some of the translations say a sick bed or a bed of violent illness. And then he says that um, not only will she be thrown on the bed, but also those who commit adultery with her, those who ascribe to her teaching. And Jesus referred to this coming time of great tribulation. There's coming a time when God will take out his church and there will be great tribulation upon the earth. And there are some people in the church who tolerated the sin, some who had even fallen into it, but some were just tares. And they're going on to a sick bed of judgment. Oh, you like adultery? I'll give you a bed of adultery. I'll give you a bed of sickness, a bed of violent sickness like you've never seen. And when the rapture of the church takes place, the true saints will be gone and others will be left behind. I will strike her children, the Bible says. I will kill her children with pestilence. Literally, I will kill her children dead. It's the word thanatos. You know what thanatology is? It's the study of death. It comes right into English. I will kill her children with death. 
And the death that Jesus is referring to is spiritual death. We will study it later on. The second death, Revelation 20, verse 12, and the deeds and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the book according to their deeds. Why will God of the great white throne judgment judge all the loss of all time according to their deeds? Because their deeds will show whether or not they know Jesus. It will reveal what's in their heart. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life and no one's name at that judgment is found, they were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It's the eternal death. And I will give to each one according to your deeds. Now, just very quickly, I'll just briefly comment what he decided about this church. Two things, two encouraging truths. First, that the righteous were to maintain their testimony. The righteous were to maintain their testimony. We read now in verse 24, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, praise the Lord, not everyone followed, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. The promise of putting no other burden on them is a summary of just how simple his request is. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ's way is not burdensome. John will write, in 1 John 5, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. If you know Jesus, they are a delight. Now Satan may deceive you for a time that you've been ripped off, but it's a pleasure to follow the living God. Nevertheless, what you have, he says, hold fast until I come. Just keep on obeying me. Don't, don't step away, just Keep plugging away because when you get to heaven, there's an evaluation. And then secondly, the righteous will be rewarded for their testimony. And rewards will be different. We'll study this further in the Revelation when we get to heaven. Heaven is wonderful for all who go, but it's not the same for all who go. Verse 26, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. That's one of the rewards the reward to rule, authority over the nations. And Jesus quotes here in verse 27, Psalm 2, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as all I also have received authority from my father. So he's giving us a promise. We're gonna reign with him because Messiah is coming back to rule and to reign. 2 Timothy 2 says we will reign with him. Revelation 5.10 says he will reign upon the earth. And Revelation 24 says that we will reign with Christ for a thousand years. It's one of the blessings that God gives to the faithful believer. And I will give him, verse 28, notice, the morning star. Now, in some of your translations, morning star is capitalized. And that's okay. Remember, in the original Greek manuscripts, the oldest, everything's in capitals. And some of the old, the, the newer ones, so to speak, that are centuries old, millennia old, they're all lowercase, but the original, all caps. So the translator has to discern, is this a proper noun, like God, where we capitalize it or not, and context determines it. But I think it's correct to capitalize it as morning star, because later on in the Revelation 22:16, Jesus will refer to himself as the bright and morning star. Listen, this is a great promise. 
What is greater than the presence of Jesus Christ? What makes heaven so precious is not the streets of gold, not your loved ones whom you long to see, but when you will see Jesus. It's a beautiful analogy to call Christ the bright and morning star. He is going to come at the darkest time in human history. And the shadows of darkness are already upon us, but it's going to get a lot darker, especially after the church is gone. And Jesus is encouraging these saints, don't let up, don't back down, don't let down until you're taken up. Follow him, follow me with all of your heart. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I remember reading the historical record of the wealthy Roman who had a lavish estate and he left everything he had to his servant Marcellus. And when that wealthy Roman died, he wrote in his will, which we have, you can read it. Because he had some kind of a dispute with his son, he left nothing to his son but one thing and everything to his slave. His will reads, I have left my entire estate to my slave Marcellus. To my son I leave him only one thing. He can choose any one thing from my estate that he wants. But that is all. And so his son very, said very well, I choose Marcellus. <laughs> when you choose Jesus, you get everything. And there's no wiser choice than that, not only for salvation, but for sanctification. The cheap substitutes of this world will never satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Choose him. It's either Jesus or Jezebel. You cannot serve two masters. Holy Father, thank you today for your word that you've given us. May we have ears to hear and wills to respond. I pray today for someone listening in the sound of my voice who has never received Jesus as Lord. They may profess to know him, but as your word says, by their deeds they deny him. Help them to realize that salvation is not a reward to the righteous. It is a gift to the guilty to the man, to the woman, to the boy or girl that will admit that they are spiritually, morally bankrupt, that they fall far short of the glory of God necessary to enter the kingdom of God. But thank you as a gift, you will give it to anyone who will come and place their confidence in the one who died for all of our sin. Help someone today, Father, in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save even me. And help those of us who have made that decision to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously and holy in this present age. Father, we submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus who is worthy of everything. May that be true of us today, this week, and all the days of our life, we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.